All right, we'll look at session six, page 61, in just a moment. But we've had one week off because last week we didn't meet together because it was Ordinance Sunday. And so during this hour, we had the observance of the Ordinance of Baptism. So if you weren't here last week, you didn't miss anything in, in uh, this uh, series. But let me remind you what we've covered, what we covered last time, and then where today fits into it. Our series is, as you see on the front cover of your notebook and behind me on the screen, Relationships, A Mess Worth Making. And each of the now five weeks of the series, we have asked and sought to answer one question each week. The first week, the question was this, what do I bring to the table in my relationships? And we noted then that all of us bring our nature and our nurture and our desires to our relationship. And our nature is simply what we're born with, who we are uh, as individuals in terms of our innate uh, tendencies, our propensities, our gifts, our abilities, and so on. We bring our nature to every relationship, but we also bring our nurture, that is, what we have learned by observation in our environment, in our homes and in our workplaces and in our education. We have been nurtured to see people and relationships in a particular way and then to handle the issues that arise in those relationships in a particular way. Nature and nurture, but then there's also our desires. We all come to our relationships with desires, very often unspoken, even unconscious desires that are exposed, that are revealed when, in the context of that relationship, those desires, expectations are not met. And we're going to see what happens when those desires are not met in today's lesson. It results in, today's lesson is on conflict. So the first question that we sought to answer was, what do I bring to the table? But then the second question that we've looked to answer is, what's the problem? And we most often look at the problem in our relationships as outside of ourselves. It's the other person or it's a particular circumstance that we are in in this particular relationship. But we saw then that the real problem, the root problem, is not the other person or the circumstance. The root problem is an inside job. It's actually with us. The third question was, what agenda uh, or whose agenda am I going to pursue in this relationship? And the question was not about our agenda versus the other person's agenda, but rather whether or not I will pursue God's agenda or my own. And we saw that God has an agenda in all of our relationships for us to be an instrument in the life of the other person, but also for that relationship to be a laboratory in which I am growing in Jesus. I'm being conformed to the image of Jesus. I'm becoming more like Christ. The fourth question that we sought to answer was, in this relationship, who am I going to worship? And we saw then that at all times and in all circumstances, we are transacting with God in our hearts. That we are worshiping someone or something at all times. We were made to be worshipers. And so in the midst of this relationship with all of its trial and all of its difficulty and all of its twists and turns, who am I going to worship in, in this relationship? And then last time, we sought to answer the question, will I be a thief? in this relationship. And if you were here two weeks ago, you may remember that. And that the idea was this. It was on communication. And the notion of thievery or stealing is this. 
that the ability to talk and the relationships in which we are to engage in that ability to communicate is a gift from God. God gives you both the gift of communication and the relationships in which it's to be exercised. And if you use that gift for your own ends, then you are misappropriating something that belongs ultimately to God, that he gave you for his ends. And so to misappropriate company property, and it's all God's property, is really stealing. Am I going to be a thief or am I going to use the gift of communication that God has given me for the purpose for which he gave it? Today, here's the question. Who's going to get killed in this relationship? Somebody's going to get murdered. Who's it going to be? Who's, who's, going, to, who's going to be eliminated in this relationship? And I'm only being partly facetious. That, what does that have to do with the subject that is session number six, which is conflict? Well, it's this, that in conflict, there is always an enemy. And as I ask the question, who is going to, to be killed, we want to kill the enemy, and so we're going to have to rightly identify who or what the enemy is. And so who is going to be eliminated in this relationship? can be answered a few ways. Some might answer this way. Conflict itself needs to be killed. Conflict needs to be eliminated. In order for this relationship to be what it should be, there should be no conflict. That's one answer. It turns out to be a wrong answer. Because, as we're going to see, there actually is a good kind of conflict. But the assumption for the person who answers the question that way, who's going to get eliminated, who's going to get killed in this relationship, and the answer is conflict, for that person, conflict is bad. Conflict is always bad. Now, this is usually the person who brings by their nature what they bring to the table. One of the things that they bring to the table is a propensity toward avoidance of any difficulty. That's their, that's their personality. They, they, they don't do well in a tense situation. And if they're going to be involved in a tense situation, they're going to start sweating. They're going to get, they're going to get anxious. And this is the person who says, conflict needs to be eliminated. The only way I know to eliminate it is just walk out of the room. Maybe slam the door. Maybe throw something. <laughs> but I'm getting out of here because conflict is uncomfortable for me. I'm uncomfortable with it. So one answer to the question, who or what is going to be eliminated, killed in this relationship, is conflict itself. Or the other answer to it is, who really needs to be eliminated? And of course, I trust, we're not literally speaking about eliminating anyone, but the other person needs to be somehow removed from the situation. Or I need to be removed from the other person. Somehow this other person is the enemy and they got to get out of my life. And there are a number of ways to do that. And if somebody believes that, if that's their answer to the question, who's the enemy and therefore who needs to be eliminated, it's the other party in this relationship, what will characterize that person's approach toward the other party if they really see him or her as the enemy? It'll be things like ad hominem attacks. 
I just like using the word ad hominem. But it's a Latin phrase that means to the person. Ad hominem. It means if I see you as the enemy, then our conflicts are going to take this form. I attack you. You're the problem. I attack you. I attack you with my words, might even attack you physically. But I attack you because you're the enemy. It'll take this form as well, that I will find myself lying about you. I will say things like, you always. And you always is like almost never true. If there was ever one time that the person didn't do what you're saying they always do, then you always is not true. So I always counsel people, don't say you always. Because God doesn't like people using his oxygen to lie. Or, conversely, you what? You never. But these are attacks at what you do or what you fail to do. You always do this. You never do this. You are the problem. You are the enemy. My barbs and my attacks are addressed at you because the one that needs to be removed, eliminated from this situation is you. Or, it'll take the form of you talking about the other person. I said, or, and. In addition to all of that, you'll also find yourself talking about the other person. So, 70% of people in church will know that you're not pleased with your husband. Now, it's in the form of prayer requests, of course. Just pray for my husband. He has a battle with. Here it goes. There's no gossip like spiritual gossip. Or could be the wife, but you talk about. You talk about them to other people. You gossip about them to other people. You slander them to other people. And you feel justified in doing so because they're the problem, they're the enemy. They're what needs to be eliminated here. You let that go on for a while, and here's what happens. You become angry toward, even embittered and repulsed by that person. You let that mentality fester long enough what needs to be eliminated is you. You're the problem. You're the enemy. It's the other party. And you go through the ad hominem and you go through the, the gossip and the slander and you go through that in your mind long enough and you are repulsed by this person. You're embittered at this person. You really can't stand being around this person. Because they clearly are the problem. And I know they're the problem because I feel this way toward them. I mean, every time I get around them, my, my stomach just knots up. I feel this way. There must be something with them. When, in fact, what's been going on is you have been cultivating a mentality toward them over a long period of time. They, in fact, may be less than what they should be. Let me repeat that. They, in fact, are less than what they should be. And they may be woefully short of what they should be. But as we're going to see, ultimately, they're not the problem. 
And they are not the enemy that needs to be eliminated. So what if what really needs to be done away with is not conflict itself or the other person, but in fact a third thing altogether? And that's what our lesson today is about. Page 61. Facing conflict head on. And notice the cause and the cure. What does need to be eliminated? Why can't at least one relationship in our lives come with a no-conflict label? Some people think that's what marriage is for. And those people are in for a big surprise. In reality, marriage is the most likely place for conflict, but close relationships such as marriage are also the most likely places for supernatural change to occur. If we have a problem, conflict is a good one to have. Why? Because conflict is a problem the Bible addresses quite directly. We don't have to be expert Bible scholars to get help here. All we need is a heart that's ready and willing to hear the answer. And we're going to look at the answer in James chapter 4. If you have your Bible, turn to James chapter 4. If you don't, then you can just follow as I read. But please do not skip over quickly that line that says, a heart that is ready and willing to hear the answer. You are here by God's appointment. It is no accident that you're here to hear this lesson. And I implore you to open your heart to what God has to say from His Word. And if you fail to do so, and your relationships continue to deteriorate, and your attitude in those relationships continues to deteriorate, you will not be able to say, I was not warned and I did not know. James chapter 4, ask the question about conflict in verse 1. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. Now let's just stop there. And ask, answer the question that's on page 61. According to this passage, why do we fight with one another? And according to this passage, it's our own desires, not getting what we want. And that's right. You don't have to be a Bible scholar. That is what that says, isn't it? Or to put it another way, before there's an external battle with another person, there's an internal battle within you. And the root battle is actually the one that takes place within you, your desires that battle within you. Before there's ever the fight and the quarrel on the outside with this other person, there is the battle that's going on within me, within you. So, bottom of page 61, James says the root of conflict is within us. Often our typical response is to point the finger at the other person. And so we say, I did that because you. Or I wouldn't be so angry if you wouldn't. We like to justify our response because the other person has done something annoying, frustrating, even downright sinful. But James is clear, conflict arises from the desires that battle within us. Now this is important, bottom of page 61. The word desire would be better translated selfish desire because all desires are not wrong but a selfish desire is. So here's what happens. Very often, and we're going to see what some of these are as we progress in today's lesson, 
But very often we have desires that are good desires. The desire itself is not the problem. The problem is that I seek to use this desire, to have this desire fulfilled for my own selfish purposes. To put it another way, as many of you have heard me say a number of times over the years, sin in the form of idolatry, making an idol out of a desire, sin and idolatry are often found in wanting good things too much. They are often found in wanting good stuff, good things, but wanting those good things too much. And how do I know that I want them too much? Because I sin when I don't get them. I sin in my reaction to the absence of them. They have come to mean too much to me. They have, in fact, come to mean more to me than actually God does, as James is going to point out in the passage. So if you'll turn to page 62, think then, middle of page 62, think of a recent conflict that you had with somebody else. Identify the desire in your heart that led to the conflict by taking a look at the desires below. They're not sinful in and of themselves until they become selfish. They also can be revealed by what we fear. Notice this, because often what we fear is not getting what we want. And so do you identify with any of these? Or one of these in your heart during your last conflict, comfort. I want, I must have, and I deserve to be comfortable. And you better not get in the way of me getting it. Conversely, I fear hard work and sacrifice. So, is a desire for comfort an evil thing in itself? The answer is no. But if I don't get the comfort as I define it, at the time I want it, in the way that I want it, then I show that it has become an idolatrous desire, a selfish desire, when I'm willing to sin in reaction to not having it. Comfort. Pleasure. I want, must have, deserve to feel good. And you better make me feel that way. Conversely, I, here's what I fear. I fear pain. Recognition, I want, must have, deserve to be recognized or I'll be devastated. I fear being overlooked and unnoticed. I want, must have, deserve power. You better do what I say. I fear being told what to do. I would much rather tell what to do than be told what to do. And so power, control, I want, must have, and deserve control. And you will feel the brunt of my disappointment if you mess up my tidy little universe. The flip side of that is I, I fear, I don't like unpredictability and the unknown. Or here's another one, acceptance, I want, must have, and deserve acceptance. And you're responsible for giving it to me. I fear rejection. You can make a whole list of these things. Now notice, they're all okay things. But they can easily, in our hearts, which are idle factories, become selfish desires, exposed, revealed, when we don't get them. Now, this is not in your notes, but let me put it to you this way. This is the way this goes in our relationships, beginning in our hearts, and then coming outward in the conflict. But the battle first is inside us. I want this thing. It may be a good thing. I want it too much. You didn't provide it. So here's how it goes. Six things occur within us and within our hearts in the progression of the development of this idol. 
six things. And here they are. First is, I want. So I desire. This thing. I want. But what I want, which may be fine, comfort, acceptance, so forth. It may be fine itself. What I want morphs into the psychologized language of today in our culture to I need. You see, in our culture, we have deified, we've made a God out of need. And if you read the counselors, particularly the secular counseling literature, but unfortunately even Christian counseling literature that's been secularized, you get all this stuff about people's fundamental needs and all of that garbage. Have I made clear how I feel about that? I want, no, 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 I don't want, I need. Now, it's not just that I need. I mean, if this is a real, honest-to-goodness need, and social science has proven that every man needs and every woman needs fill-in-the-blank. So it's not just I want and then I need, but thirdly, I must. This is there's non-negotiable. You either provide this or hit the bricks. I must have this. This is an absolutely legitimate need that I must have. Which takes you to the fourth thing. You should. So I want and I need and I must, but notice the pronoun has now shifted. And it may be that your friend did not know that all of these transactions were going on in your heart when we had the I pronoun. I want and I need and I must. This is all going on in your head. This is all going on in your heart. But then there is a, a line that's crossed to now you. This is gone from now what I think should happen to how you should participate in what I think should happen. You should. Oh, here we go. You should. I, I, I should what? Well, if you don't know, I'm not going to tell you. Okay? What, what is that? When somebody says that, I mean, how many times does that go on in relationships? Well, if you, you should know. It's obvious this is a need. Any fool should know that this is what... This is what I must have. You're not providing it. If you don't care enough to know, I'm not going to tell you. Okay? You should. But then the fifth thing is, you didn't. So any reasonable person would agree that this is a need. I've got all kinds of studies to show that. Therefore, it's an incumbent responsibility upon you to provide it, and you haven't. Well, then simple justice dictates the last one. And that is you'll pay. You have a moral ought on you. You are morally responsible because we are in this relationship to provide this need for me. And you haven't done so. So it follows that you're going to have to suffer the consequences of what you've done or failed to do. I suppose this is the only way to get it through your thick skull is for me to yell at you. 
is for me to like just leave and take a drive for a while and just see how you like that. Okay, me being gone for a while. And there'll be more of that to come if you don't change your ways. And it's simply a matter of justice. I'm not trying to be mean. I'm the victim here. Okay? And you see how people do this. And by the time you get down to this, man, it has been so thoroughly rationalized that you're looking at it from that perspective. And then, you know, Brown comes along and says, well, hey, let's talk about this. And, you know, you're, you're all the way down this road with absolutely convinced that you are right. And this is only what I deserve. And anybody in their right mind would agree with me. Good luck on that, Brown. The only hope I have in that situation, but thankfully it's, it's the greatest hope, and that is that God can work on the heart. And God can move the heart away from itself and toward him. Which is the next part. If you look at page 64... What does God do to people who forsake him for something else? You say, forsake him? Forsake him? <laughs> All I want is comfort. All I want is acceptance. Now you got me forsaking God. I believe in God. Me and God are tight. God really has nothing to do with it. It's me and this other crumb I'm with. But what does James chapter 4 say? Why, why are we bringing God into this? Notice verse 4. You adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. This is in the context of personal relationships. And what we desire and what we demand and the conflicts that result from them. And spiritual adultery is now come into the equation. I didn't bring that up. God did. God calls your wandering idolatrous heart and my wandering selfish desires, he calls those spiritual adultery. Or another word is just idolatry. This thing has become so important to me that if I don't get it, I'm willing to sin against God in its absence. And that is spiritual adultery. And what does God do then, page 64, to people who forsake him, whose hearts have been drawn away from the true and living God toward their own selfish desires, such that they are willing to sin against him because they haven't gotten it? What does God do with people like that? Verses 5 and 6. Do you think that Scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? Now that verse is not perhaps obvious in its meaning right away, so just think about it for a second. Here's someone who has a battle going on in their heart, selfish desires that have drawn them away from God, such that in verse 4 it's called spiritual adultery. I want it so much, even though it's a good thing, I want it so much that I want it more than God. And so verse 5 says, The spirit that he has caused to live in you envies intensely. Here's what that means. 
God has a stake in this battle in your heart. The battle with your own selfish desires is going on inside of you, but God the Holy Spirit, if you have come to Jesus, also lives in that heart. And he is jealous. He envies intensely for your heart. And so this God, to whom I owe my allegiance and my desires and my affections, but from whom I have been lured away by my selfish desires, this God is not going to leave it at that. He's going to chase you down. He's jealous. And he does not want to see your heart given to anyone or anything else but him. And he'll chase you down in a bunch of ways. If you know Jesus, you'll be miserable. You'll be miserable while you sin. And you need to thank God for that misery. Because that's God who cares enough for you to say, this is not the route you go. I'm drawing you back to myself. You'll be miserable. He'll use people who love you and who love you more than they love comfort, who will come and say, you can't do this. You can't go that route. To lovingly call you back to your relationship, first and foremost with God, and then with whomever it is that you have the external problem. Third of the page down on page 64. When we wander from God, the spirit he's poured out on us and who now lives in us becomes quite concerned and envious. A better way to translate the words envious or jealous is the word zealous. Like the person who is unfaithful, God is zealous to do whatever it takes to regain the affection of our hearts. He doesn't do this because he needs us. He does this because he loves us. So look at the question there. Based on what we've learned so far, what do you think God uses? To regain our affections. Well, he's often going to use other people in your life to regain those affections. These people who love you more than they need you. and Who are willing to call you back to repentance. God uses the difficulties, bottom of the page, in relationships to allow us to see what we typically live for besides him. And then he uses this example that I encourage you to read, beginning on page 59 from Ashley and Hannah. Who is God, bottom of the page, using in your life right now? Do you see that your wise, sovereign, and gracious Redeemer was acting on your behalf when he placed this person in your life? I mean, what, did God mess up? Did God not know? God has placed you in this situation. And he expects you to grow and wants you to grow in the situation in which he has placed you. Now, if you see that, you are growing in your ability to engage in conflict in godly ways. Remember, you can't avoid conflict, but it can be a place where amazing growth takes place. And once we're rescued, then what should we do? Page 65. In our last few minutes, let's get practical. Understand, bottom, toward the bottom of page 65, that conflict is one way that God works in our lives. In fact, God himself entered conflict when he humbly came as man to fight on our behalf against the ravages of sin. 
He calls us to imitate him as we engage in conflict with others. Godly conflict is an act of compassion. So understand that, but then identify what drives ungodly conflict. What tends to lure our loyalty and affection from God? And friends, if you really are going to take up the challenge at the beginning of this lesson, to have a heart that's open to change, then you'll be willing to do this. Be specific and don't be surprised if each instance of ungodly conflict reveals a different idol in you, whether acceptance, power, control, recognition, pleasure, or just being right. Recognize your particular default strategy in conflict. Most of us have a default strategy. Do we love to fight because we have to be right? Do we avoid conflict because we don't want people to disapprove of us? Do we avoid it because we don't like discomfort? What's your default strategy? And part of that is, identifying that is going to begin with what I started with. Identifying who the real enemy is and what needs to be eliminated. If conflict is what needs to be eliminated, well then you'll walk away from conflict. And you'll avoid it at all costs. And guess what will happen? Nothing will get resolved. It will get worse. Engage in specific and intelligent spiritual warfare. When we see what we typically live for and how we try to get it, we can start to grow in repentance and faith. We want to be brutally honest about our sin, but we also want to be ardently hopeful about what Christ has done on the cross. Remember that because we have the Holy Spirit, we already have the resources available to fight against ungodly conflict. And so consider the other person, and we'll consider the other person in our last few minutes from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. If you have your Bible, turn to 1 Thessalonians 5. If not, I'll try to read it clearly and accurately. 1 Thessalonians 5. Verse 14 says this. Warn those who are idle. Encourage the timid. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong. But always try to be kind to each other and to everyone else. Be joyful always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Hmm. It's exactly the opposite of what I described with the, right? I want, I need, I must, you should, you didn't, you'll pay. Exactly the opposite. Now I'm thanking God for the circumstance and what he's going to do in it. And I'm being kind to this person rather than repaying wrong for wrong. And I'm considering what this person needs for their benefit, whether they need warning or whether they need... Uh, or whether they need help, or whether they need encouragement. And in the midst of all that, verse 14, I'm being patient with everyone. And so on page 66, what different actions does Paul in that passage say we should consider when we consider the other person? Well, I need to identify what they need, not what I need. What do they need? And what kinds of verbs are used? Warn, encourage, help. What does Paul say we should always do when we consider the other person in the passage? It's always be patient, always be kind, always be thankful and joyful and not vengeful. As our hearts are, bottom of page 66, reclaimed by the grace of God, as individuals we should ask questions about what it will look like to engage in godly conflict. Do I need to pursue someone and confront him? Do I need to be patient and encourage him? Do I need to overlook an offense? What sins and weaknesses in the other person do I need to consider? 
Paul says there are different ways to confront based on the person's needs and what will build him up. Notice, not based upon what I want, but what they need. And then you make a plan to approach the person. On page 67, there's a whole list of suggestions for approaching another person to warn, to encourage, to help. Often I make the suggestion to folks who have let this kind of thing go on for years, and it's amazing. It's amazing. It's amazing how many people go to Bible-believing churches for years. They know John 3.16. They know the Romans' road to salvation. They know where the books of the Bible are. They know the various characters. And when it comes down to where they live every moment of every day, they've not implemented any of this stuff. And so you've got people sitting in churches all over the place, all over the place, with hearts that are far from God. And when they leave, when, when they leave, when some of you leave in three minutes, it'll be right back to it. At each other in the van. At each other at the meal. At each other all week. And it really does raise the question, friends, I'll tell you what I really care most about. What I really care most about is the reputation of Jesus. And it really raises the question, well, then what difference does Jesus make? Anybody can do that. Everybody does that. But it takes a supernatural difference in the heart of an individual to not repay wrong for wrong, to be kind when insulted, to look at the other person and say, what do they need, not what do I want? And when someone does that day in and day out, that shows Jesus Christ to the individual. If we have children to our children, to our co-workers, instead of gossiping about what an idiot my spouse is, you may be going through a really tough time. Your spouse may be mistreating you. And those people look at it and they say, how do you have such a gracious attitude? And you say, let me tell you about Jesus, who has shown his grace to me and has made a difference in my life. But so many people haven't done that, so the tension is so thick you can cut it, man. So much so that if somebody finally comes to the point that I need to communicate, and I want to communicate in a biblical way, you know what I recommend? I recommend that you write it out. And do you know why I recommend writing it out? Because we haven't cultivated really how to... We've been avoiding conflict for so long, or we've been engaged in ungodly conflict for so long, we don't even know how to talk to each other. So write it out. And put, it in the, put it in the person's hand. And pray that God will use that in their heart to draw them back from the idols that have lured them away from the purpose for which He placed us in our relationships. Godly biblical conflict. Okay. So the question is, what needs to be killed? What needs to be eliminated? Is it conflict? No. It's not conflict. Is it the other person? No. What needs to be killed are my idolatrous desires that have manifest themselves in the way that I go about my relationships. Let's bow and pray to God in that regard. Father, we thank you for your servant James and your servant Paul who have to told us in very clear and poignant ways, and convicting ways, about our hearts and what go on, goes on in our hearts, in my heart.
And Lord, when we see these external actions and attitudes present in our lives, oh Lord, grant us the grace of honesty. Grant us the grace that will say, I see the ugliness of my own heart. I'm no longer going to point the finger in another direction. I'm going to look within using the penetrating mirror, the x-ray machine that is the word of God. That knows the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart and can expose what's going on in me. Help us, Lord, to have the, grant us the grace of honesty, to see ourselves as we are, and to begin then participating in the work that you seek to do in our hearts, your jealous Holy Spirit who comes after us, who will make us miserable, who will use others in our lives to help us see the error of our way. Help me to do that. Lord Jesus, help me to do that with Kim and with my girls and in our church. And in all of my interactions. And help my brothers and sisters here to do likewise. Beginning right now. As we get into our vehicles. As we go to our meals. As we pursue our relationships this week. We ask you to do this in our hearts this week. And bring us back safely next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.